Welcome to another episode of Time Passages with Chris and Beth. And today's topic or theme that we are going to be talking about is the economic crisis of 1923 to 1924, otherwise known as hyperinflation. So let's look first by going back to 1914 on the eve of the First World War. The economy had pretty much grown quite extensively by 1914 within Germany, and arguably it was the most powerful economy uh, in on the continent at that point, uh, vying for the position with Great Britain. So many of the strengths that were featured within the German economy was that they had extensive natural resources, so they were able to mine for their own coal, their iron exports were good. Uh, secondly, uh, they had an advanced and well-developed industrial base. So, for example, that's like engineering, chemicals, electrical equipment. And on top of that, they also had a well-structured banking system as well, where they had a strong currency and one that could float on the international market. Coupled with this is the fact that Germany had a well-educated population, which were skilled in technical expertise. So... If we zip forward four years of total war on the Western Front, Germany had a dislocated economy. It was facing dire and fundamental economic problems by 1919. The biggest problem facing the German economy in 1919 was the repayment of the war reparations of 6.6 billion to Great Britain, France and America. This wasn't helped by the loss of resources from territories such as the Saar, Alsace-Lorraine and uh, Silesia. And this resulted in 16% um, decline in coal production, 13% decline in agriculture and a 48% loss of iron, which is massive as it's huge resources to the German economy. This is then going to increase prices. So between 1914 and 1918, the price of basic goods increased nearly fourfold. And I guess that ties in quite well with the increase in the national debt. So as the war is going on, as they are forming a total war economy, and obviously things are being spent on ammunition, weapons, etc., we see the national debt go from 144,000 million marks by 1919, compared to what it was at the start of the war at 5,000 million marks. Having painted a picture then of what the state of Germany's economy was in 1914 compared to what it would be in 1919, we now need to have a look at the long-term, medium-term and short-term causes of hyperinflation. But first, Beth, what exactly is hyperinflation? What would be the definition that would be useful to our listeners? So hyperinflation is that prices uh, spiral out of control um, because the government have increased the amount of money being printed. So effectively, what that means is the money is not worth the paper it's being printed on. And we always remember that uh, that joke from the time period of a lady that was carrying all her worthless notes in a basket, uh, put it on the doorstep to unlock a door and suddenly it was nicked. All that was left was the pile of money, emphasising that the basket was worth more than the actual money. So let's go back then to look at the long-term causes. Essentially, there are two ways the country could fund the war. So you've got increase in taxation. Now, the Kaiser's uh, government didn't believe in taxation, and they decided that that wasn't the way they were going to fund this war. It wasn't really Germanic, was it? Not at all. So they decided they were going to go for a war bond drive. Now, a war bond is essentially where the government in, um, asks the 
people to invest in the war and they get like a coupon or a voucher that kind of thing to say they've invested now you can claim that back once the country has won the war and there's the catch the country essentially has to win the war then expect uh, reparations from the defeated countries and then that is used to repay back the people the very interest that they've put into the war bond drive and these weren't just a german thing by the way these were happening in the usa charlie chaplin did a famous one in trafalgar square uh, to fund the british war effort so it's a great way for a country to invest and to put its um people uh, in charge of bringing money into the economy but as we say the big catch you must win the war so by 1916 it was becoming quite apparent that funds were insufficient and by 1918 what sort of figures have we got by 1918 beth um so only 16% of expenditure had been raised by taxation because like we said it Very wasn't small amount, yep. it's it's not what they wanted to do so 84% um, of the war spending had been borrowed. So that's increasing the national debt immensely. Yeah, as we said earlier, to 144,000 million by 1919. The other catch you've got when any country starts to build a total war economy is that most of your goods are geared towards warfare. So consumer goods are reduced and in their place, war material is boosted and traded. So, for instance, a factory within a city or a town might be making frilly lampshades one minute for the consumer market. The next minute, they are making ammunition and tanks. There is a problem. There is a lack of consumer goods, therefore, when we get to 1919. So this is going to have an effect on the economy because by the time they then get to 1919, consumer good prices are going to go right up. Because they're not available, and therefore the price of them, as you say, is going to skyrocket. Historians of this period also introduce the medium-term causes of hyperinflation, the middle term. And what we're talking about here is pretty much from 1918, 1919, when the uh, Weimar Republic was born, and then pretty much up to the catalyst in 1923, when we start to see hyperinflation hit. So, Beth, one measure that the government could have introduced in 1919, which they didn't do, by the way, but they could have done, was narrowing the gap. Essentially, what was narrowing the gap then? Okay, so it is uh, where the government increased taxation for the people, but in turn, that becomes um, gives them a better income. Sure. Also, the government then reduce their spending. So they reduce what they spend their money on so that it claws back a bit of that money. But I guess... As I will come on to now, the, the um, narrowing the gap theory of uh, treating the economy didn't really work for the Germans. They felt that it was something that would alienate the people, it would produce social difficulties. Remember, in the background, this is a new government coming into power. They don't want to do something as extreme as this. So instead, they choose something called deficit financing. Deficit finance is essentially an offshoot of balancing the budget. If a country was to balance its budget, it would essentially spend the same amount as it receives. So if 10 million goes into the economy, the government won't spend any more than 10 million. Hence, we get a balancing of the budget. The difference with deficit financing is that actually the country spends more than it receives. So if it gets 10 million from the people, say through taxation, it, wouldn't, it would spend more than 10 million, maybe 40 or 50 million. Uh, analogy, a good analogy would be um, 
say a seesaw Beth yeah exactly so the best way that I think of it is through a seesaw so when you balance the books you have got a seesaw that's got equal weight on either side so that you've got that straight uh, level seesaw it's a receive on one side spend on the other yeah exactly with uh, deficit financing it's like when you used to go on a seesaw with your parents as a kid your parent would go right down to the bottom which is your spending and you would be right high in the air which is your receiving so as your receiving is that light bit at the top of the seesaw and your spending is that heavy weight at the bottom so the purpose of that therefore why they are spending more rather than what from what they receive is quite simply that they want to pump more money into the economy and the essence of that is if people have more money to spend, okay, so they're raising wages, they're giving more people money in their pocket, they're more likely to spend more on consumer goods. If they're going to spend more on consumer goods, that means that we've got to produce more consumer goods. So it's going to get people into work, it's going to get people to buy things. And slowly but surely, the wheel of progress is going to turn and turn and turn. That is the theory behind deficit financing. However, there is a catch uh, with this policy is that inflation does continue. So that means prices do continue to rise. And that's the point. Uh, For deficit financing to really work, this is the essential part of that policy. Inflation should be allowed to continue. Yet, once again, there's the catch. It's still continuing. Uh, In the background, we still have reparations being paid. Remember Beth said earlier about £6.6 billion were being paid by the German government to the victorious powers. And they're still paying that. And part of the problem is that they're paying it in hard currency. Those countries don't want it in marks. Marks isn't a strong currency. So therefore they want it in hard dollars or pounds uh, as part of their deal package. Um, It's not the biggest factor at this point that's important to stress but it is a factor nonetheless because what happens as Beth has highlighted inflation climbs higher and higher because of the reparations and also the value of the mark is decreasing so the value of the mark because it's decreasing the mark in the back pocket of the individual is slowly becoming worthless this leads us into the key catalyst of 1923 the short-term cause of hyperinflation known as the invasion of the Ruhr. Beth, we've discussed this in previous podcasts, but can you remind us what is the Ruhr? Why is it central to Germany? So the Ruhr is the heartland of of German industry. So it's where uh, the majority of production of coal, steel, massive resources for uh, the whole of the country uh, is produced and it was something like 80% um, Mm. of Mm. German industry was produced in this one section of land called the Ruhr. And to put it into context in 1922 there was a little bit of breathing space offered to Germany in terms of paying its reparations. The victorious powers that were due their money came together at a conference but really it was ill-fated. Um, it never amounted to anything. They still wanted their money. And the French were becoming quite restless, quite relentless in their approach to get the reparation payments. And in 1923, the Ruhr was invaded uh, by the backing of Raymond Poincaré, the uh, French uh, leader, that they should invade the Ruhr. So the reason that the um, French went into the Ruhr was that Germany couldn't pay with money like we've talked about earlier. So they decided that the way that Germany uh, were going to pay them was through 
um, industrial goods. So by invading the Ruhr, they took over the factories and um, took their payment like that, really, didn't they? But one of the effects of this was actually that there was animosity and anger amongst the German workers within the Ruhr. And uh, Chancellor Kuno uh, came up with the idea of passive resistance. Don't fight the French, don't retaliate, but refuse to actually work in the hope that actually the French would then give up, uh, see the situation as futile and maybe appease the Germans in a different manner. But the problem with passive resistance is that, quite simply, the French were then drafted in to do the work themselves. On top of that, uh, by being uh, passive, Kuno needed the workers on his side. So essentially, in order to do that, he continued to pay their wages. This therefore causes the problem that the economy is becoming strained and strained even more so by having to pay these additional wages when no work, no consumption is actually going in to the economy. Exactly, you're getting no output for your input. So Germany are not receiving any of the materials that they would do from the Ruhr, but they're still having to pay their workers as if they were. So it's a lose-lose situation for the German Chancellor Kuno and his people. And as a result, the mark begins to plummet on the international market and it becomes now worthless. So the key catalyst there that causes barter instead of trade and the value of money is the invasion of the Ruhr. So to conclude then, we've bandied many words around. We've talked about deficit financing and the impact that had on the economy. We've talked about the key catalyst, short-term cause, of the invasion of the Ruhr and its impact on the economy. And we've even gone back and tried to compare what it was like in 1914 and 1919 after four years of total war. Essentially, the fundamental cause of the great inflation is to be found in the mismanagement of Germany's finances from 1914 onwards. So what we mean here is that in 1914 onwards, the governments that were ruling Germany found no middle ground in terms of their borrowing and their spending, and they weren't doing it within reasonable limits that they could afford. The choice of choosing deficit financing was a risky one. It was difficult to do well after a four years of total war. Uh, maybe at a better, t a better time in their history it might have worked, but it certainly didn't in 1919. And then we've also got the extra complications that they also had to pay for uh, the reparations. Exactly. Which exasperated it even more. So the key issue for me really is that they were allowing high levels of debt to continue. It was almost like they weren't really solving the issue. They were sort of dealing with the issue, but they weren't solving the issue. Also, this economic crisis um, allowed politicians to gain um, support within the government. It's that mm -hmm. rising of a nationalistic um, feeling within the government. So, ex for example, with Kuno in the um, Ruhr invasion, it's getting the public on side before actually fixing the economy. Yeah, and that comes ties in quite well with passive resistance, paying the wages. Um, chances were really weak at this point. It's not until we get the legend is history, is given him that title, exactly, um, yeah. the hero, the saviour of Germany, Gustav Stresemann, how he deals with hyperinflation, which we'll look at in another podcast. But the point is, is that until we get to Stresemann, we don't really have a decent chancellor. Um, Ebert allows these weak chancellors to come in and they don't really solve the issues uh, within the economy. And it's best, right, quite, quite rightly said, a lot of it is all about channeling 
um, how can I stay, how can I maintain power rather than dealing with the issue? Exactly. The focus is totally selfish rather than thinking and fixing the economy for Germany. So for me, and Beth will probably be in agreement here, uh, high levels of debt being allowed to continue is a real weakness. And on the back of that, printing more and more money just exasperates the situation. Completely.